Uh, we're going to be talking about the bronze altar, as I mentioned uh, today. Uh, there were a couple altars in, in the tabernacle itself. The bronze altar was one that was placed just outside the tent proper, the tabernacle proper. And there was another one that was inside that was the um, altar of incense. Um, but again, we're going to be talking about that bronze altar, the one that was outside. And in order for us to talk about it, we need to do some reading together. So I have a couple slides. I'm going to join you in reading these eight verses together. Let's begin. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basin, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. This is God's barbecue pit. You can see, sorry, this screen isn't very good as well over there. You can see some of the artist's renderings of that. Um, bronze altar and, and how it was put together. You know, it's really fascinating as you read the tabernacle and as you read all the stuff that was used and the materials that was used to uh, put the tabernacle together, um, what you find is that on the outer part of the tabernacle, there's, there's material of lesser importance. But as you get closer and closer and closer inside the tabernacle, you see that material gets used of, of higher quality. All the gold stuff and everything, too, is like inside the tabernacle, right? Just kind of talks more about even the more sacred, special nature of what's happening even inside the Holy of Holies itself. Bronze, you see a lot of that stuff on the outside of that tent proper, and we saw that with the bronze basin, too, as well, that it was made of bronze. And so, too, this altar. Let's talk about... Um, this altar then as well. And for starters, let's talk about its purpose. Um, the Hebrew word that's used for altar is mizbiah. And it comes from the same root word that means slaughter. Slaughter. Right off the bat, right? Now we understand what the purpose of this altar is. It's, it's about slaughtering. And this is where things like sin offerings and burnt offerings were brought. And indeed, slaughtering was a part of that process. Lambs were slaughtered, and the blood of the lamb was taken, and the priests would take it on their fingertips and put it on the horns of the altar. We also see that in the burnt offering, a ram would be slaughtered, and before the ram was barbecued, uh, they would splash liberally blood all over this altar, all over the sides of this altar, everywhere. Uh, we also know that this altar obviously was involved with atonement, right? The covering of, the, of sins by the blood of animals. Uh, what's interesting, too, and I reference Levit Leviticus 8 up there, is this, this is the chapter that deals with the consecration of 
the altar itself and also the priests and their office and everything too. And I tell you, read that chapter and it's just one bloody mess after another, right? Blood is smeared here, blood is thrown here. Even the priests themselves in their white robes, they've got blood splashed on them too as well. It's just a bloody scene that's going on here. And that's all a part of that. Let's talk about some of the descriptions in regards to the altar. And I want to talk about three um, symbolic aspects of this altar. The first one is that the altar itself, as you can see, is square in shape. It's got four corners. And this actually was an echo of the four corners of the world. Um, this is a depiction in the Bible. The world is described as being four corners. And you can see that in different locations, Isaiah 11 being one of those places. They also talk about the idea of the four winds coming from the four corners. And so the altar itself really becomes kind of a microcosm of the world, right? This is the place where um, uh, atonement and sacrifice is found. And it's, it's meant to be for the entire world as well. If you recall from your Old Testament, remember Israel was to be a light to the... Say it loud! Nation, some people are saying nation, Gentiles, right? Nations, Gentiles, right? And so what that meant, right, was that the altar, right, being a place for sacrifices for the world, even means the Gentiles were invited to participate and be a part of the covenant relationship with God. Uh, we also see four horns on the altar, as I was described. What's up with these horns on the altar? That seems kind of bizarre. Uh, for starters, altars in the ancient world um, had horns on them. You see these, archaeology has discovered this, and not just Israel had them, but Israel's pagan neighbors had them. So what's the big deal about horns? Horns, as you can see, um, display strength and power. That's their symbolism. In fact, animals in the Bible who have horns are described to be animals who are strong and have power to them. And it seems like that symbolism is then um, taken and put in regards to the altar itself, the four horns. What's interesting is in the sin offering, like I already mentioned, when the lamb was slaughtered, the blood, the, the priest smeared that blood on the horns. That's interesting because it means if horns are talking about strength and power, it means that the strength and power of atonement is in God, in God alone. We also see uh, fire of the altar here, right? Fire is going on here. Throughout the Bible, one of the symbolisms for, for fire is God's judgment. Um, and we see here in regards to the altar itself that there is a substitute, right? A substitute is placed in the fire. It's not us that are placed in the fire, not us having to deal with God's judgment. Rather, the substitute deals with our judgment, right? And that's the whole thing about the sacrificial system, is there's a substitute that is given that is not us. I don't know about you, but um, sometimes when I... Uh, look at these kinds of things, and I, I read all this in depth in regards to the Old Testament, and all the description, and the details in regards to the tabernacle, and we read, we read all the details in regards to the, to the bronze altar, and, and you read these details in regards to sin offerings, and burnt offerings, and, and the Day of Atonement, and all these things, and, and you're just like, you know what, this just seems so foreign to me. This just seems so foreign, Right? I don't know if you feel the same way, but it just, it's just foreign because it's, and it really is. It's, it's not us. It's not our world. That seems so distant, such of a different time and a place. 
And I think sometimes when, when people read these things in the Bible, and it, and it is such a foreign nature, they begin to question God. You know, why is it that God does this? Why is it that he has these sacrifices and all this blood and, and, and all these details that are going on that just seem so messy and, and so barbaric? And then the PETA folks are upset because animals are being sacrificed, right? So it just seems such a different world for us. So why? Why is all this going on? I'll tell you why. The point is, is that God takes sin seriously. That's the point. God takes sin seriously. It's why he establishes and sets up the tabernacle the way that he does. Sin is of a serious nature. Death is a consequence to that sin. And it's also the payment that needs to be made. And I think for us in America and the West as a whole, we don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously. And I hear, for example, things like this. You know what? I'm not a perfect person, but it doesn't make me a bad person. Right? Or, or you'll hear this thing where, where people say, I, I, I believe in the, the in inherent goodness of all of humanity. Well, if we believe in the inherent goodness of all of humanity, then we obviously don't believe in the nature of sin. Sin doesn't have a place in our thinking in that regards. And, and if we just think that, you know, that, yeah, maybe we have a flaw, maybe there's some quirks about us, yeah, I know not perfect, but if we don't see the nature and the depth of that flaw and where it goes to our human heart, then we also miss out on this teaching of the serious nature of sin. And that's our culture around us where sin is not taken seriously. That's why I like the question, whatever happened to sin? You see, Scripture tells us that our hearts, right, the law is written on our hearts. We see that in places like Romans 2, 15. The law is written on our hearts. It's, it's meant to convict us, right? Uh, our conscience, right, is meant to convict us. We all have our own little personal Jiminy Crickets in our mind, right, kind of a thing. Pinocchio fans. Okay, that just totally fell flat. All right. Um, right? So we have that. Conscience-bearing guide, uh, um, bearing witness against us kind of thing, too, as well. But, but here's the problem. Martin Luther pointed out, and he said that the, the law written on our heart is a weak law. It's not strong enough to convict us to the depth that the law needs to convict us. Why? Because our hearts are sinful. Because our hearts are sinful, that, that takes away the depth of that, that conviction of the law in our hearts. That's why Luther said we need the revealed law. We need the law from God's holy word, from Scripture. The law, for example, where Paul tells us, there's no one who's righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. You see, the bronze altar functioned as a visual and visceral, visceral reminder to the Israelites of the serious nature of sin. I mean, day in and day out in the camp, the tabernacle was in the center of the camp, and, and there would be that smell of animal burning flesh, and they could see the smoke rising up. There, there would be going in, and, and they could see, right, the blood stained 
and the blood-smeared altar. They could hear the animals' cries as they're being slaughtered for sacrifice. That was a daily reminder of the serious nature of sin, the serious nature of sin that requires sacrifice. And so the smoke and the blood and the bleeding of the animals, these all communicated to the Israelites about God's mercy and forgiveness for them. Because, right, God said, you're not going to pay out of your own flesh, but rather it'll be paid out of this substitute. And that's what brings us to Jesus, right? As we see how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of that bronze altar and all that goes on there. For starters, Jesus is the Mizbah, right? He is the slaughter, right? We see in uh, John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world, right? And speaking about the world, remember the four corners of the altar. It was a microcosm of the world itself. And we know that Jesus comes to be the sacrifice for the entire world, right? He himself says it, right? John 3, 16, which we all know, For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his one and only begotten Son. Um, we also see that there is a connection between the horns of the altar and the cross and Jesus. What's very interesting, uh, two connections I want to make with you. Remember that the priest would take the blood and smear it on the horns of the altar, and we see the same thing, that there are four corners of the cross where blood is smeared, right? The head, the hands, the feet. Theologians for, for centuries have pointed out that the cross indeed is an altar, Right? Where the Lamb of God is sacrificed for us. What's also interesting, too, is that the horn is a symbol in a couple different places in the Old Testament for the Messiah. Um, Psalm 148, 14 being one of them. And where, where do we see the Messiah, the horn himself, who's smeared with blood? We're right there on the cross. And while we don't see Jesus being consumed by fire, right? It's not like his body was thrown onto... Uh, a fire pit afterwards, but we do know that that fire symbolizes judgment. And places like Hebrews talks about how that judgment comes upon Jesus, right? Again, our substitute, right? He is our substitute. That we don't have to pay for it. Jesus pays for it in our stead where the full judgment of God comes upon him. This week is Holy Week, and we'll be reminded again um, on Monday, Thursday, of that, of that prayer in the garden of Jesus, Right? Where he prays, and, and, and the description where it talks about how um, it's so intense that, that it's blood that comes from his sweat glands, right? And what does he pray? Lord, if it be your will, right? Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. What was that cup? It was a cup of the, in the Old Testament, it was the symbolism of God's wrath. He knew what he was facing, that he was going to be drinking to the dregs God's wrath. And it's very interesting that God doesn't answer Jesus' prayer initially maybe how he was hoping, right? But Jesus says, not as my will, your will be done. And God's will, the Father's will, was for his son to go to the cross for you and for me, right? To be that lamb of God, that sacrifice for us. I'm reminded, too, of this week, since Holy Week, Passion of the Christ. A lot of people might pull that video out and watch it. Uh, just don't eat food while you're watching it, by the way. Um, 
in that film, uh, in this particular scene, that hand right there is Mel Gibson's hand. And in an interview he did when that movie came out, he talked about the reason why he put his hand on the nail and the hammer was that he understood that um, Christ, that his sins put Christ on the cross. Our sins put Christ there, right? We have to remember that, that our sins need atonement, and Christ comes to die for us. And the cross should make us pause and reflect. You see, if sin isn't serious, if, if sin isn't real, there's no need for a Savior. There's no need for a Savior, and there means there's no need for a cross. In fact, the cross just becomes meaningless to us if sin isn't real and doesn't need to be atoned for. And in fact, what we view the cross as just being a tragedy. It's a tragedy because uh, an innocent man was, was, was killed upon a cross that was meaningless. And his, his cross would be no different from any of the other thousands of crosses that were in crucifixions that happened during that time. No different from the thieves that were on the sides of him. You see, just like you and I need the revealed law of God to convict us to the depths of our sin, we need, we need so desperately the revealed gospel that speaks to the true nature of who Jesus is and about his crucifixion and what that was all about. The Lamb of God, who once and for all took away the sins of the world. The gospel that really becomes a comedy for us. Not a comedy in the way that we understand it today, but a comedy from that ancient sense that was described as a story with a happy ending. Right? The gospel is our happy ending. A happy ending that has a new beginning in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, awake us always to our sin. As a doctor who speaks to the deadly nature of disease, diagnosing the serious nature of our condition, yet speak to us the cure for our condition. Show us the Savior of our sin. Show us the cross. Show us Jesus. May we always despair of ourselves in order to, or in order to by faith, find hope in you always. In Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen.